If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope and pray that you do. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, and uh, there's one there in the pew rack in front of you, you're certainly welcome to use that. So tell you tell you a little funny story that happened to me as I walked in this morning here to the worship center. <clears throat> My good buddy Liam was sitting down here on the second row, and the first thing Liam says to me is, "You got a haircut." I said I did, and I was feeling good about myself that somebody noticed and wanted to, you know, recognize it. I said, "Well, Liam, do you like it?" And he said, "No." <laughs> so. Um, Always leave it up to a, a child to just, just bring you back down to earth, amen? So it was good. So I went from a high to a low just like that. So it's a good, a good uh, illustration of life. Revelation chapter 14. I want to read to you, I want to begin by sharing with you a quote from a gentleman by the name of John Phillips. John Phillips is a, was, he recently passed away just a few years ago, a phenomenal Bible student, phenomenal Bible teacher. But in his introduction, in his commentary on Revelation chapter 14, he shares this. It, it's a few sentences, so just be patient with me. But, but just the, how he introduces this is it, just, I thought it was really good and would be really helpful. And he says this, and I quote, the picture that has unfolded thus far in the apocalypse is that of a world ruined by man. As the seals have been broken and restraint removed, passions in the human heart, long restrained by God, have been allowed to come full flower and fruit. The harvest has been one of complete chaos on earth. With the blowing of the trumpets, the picture has taken on an, the, the even darker hue of a world ruled by Satan. Satanic power has been unleashed, and the evil one's plans for the sub subjugation of the race have been allowed to mature. The world has united beneath the banner of the beast. He has been hailed as Messiah, and worship has been offered to both him and the dragon. Satan's schemes have been allowed at long last to reach the high tide mark. With chapter 14, there comes a change and a turning of the tide. The ebb sets in and flows faster and ever faster as God takes over in direct and determined intervention in the affairs of men. From here on, we have set before us a picture of a world rescued by God, end quote. And that is a hallelujah because... As, we have be, as, we, as we've studied through Revelation, and particularly as we got into chapter 4 and on, and we saw the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, we have seen a world ruined by chaos and sin and depravity and unbelief. But beginning with chapter 14 today, we began to see this picture of God directly intervening and rescuing this world, Okay. Just remember, chapters 12, 13, and 14 kind of serve as a parenthetical, uh, giving us a, another vantage point of all that, it, that was happening in, in chapters 4 through 11. Chapter 12 introduced us, if you remember, to the woman, the dragon, and the child, who we know as Israel, the devil, and Messiah. And then chapter 13, we saw Satan's main characters of the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now we begin to see God 
with his final judgment of sin and unbelief, the details of which are going to follow. But chapter 14 introduces it to us, and we begin to see God rescuing his world, uh, ultimately for his glory and for his honor. And so here's how we're going to do this. We're going to take this in sections, kind of like we've been doing, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 together first. And so let's kind of dive into that. We, we see here uh, the lamb and the 144,000 is the first thing we see in verses 1 through 5. And so let's read that together. John writes, Then I looked, and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And the first thing we see here in verse 1, we see the 144,000 standing with Christ on Mount Zion. Now, there's no reason for us to assume that these 144,000 are different than the 144,000 from chapter 7. Remember, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who are redeemed during the tribulation, who come to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior during the tribulation, and then subsequently become great evangelists to the entire world, to every people, nation, and language the world over. And chapter 7 even further tells us that they lead a multitude of others to the saving knowledge of Christ. And so we see these standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a description used throughout Scripture to reference that, that the heavenly city of God. And so what's happening here? Uh, there are generally three views of, chapter, of, of verse 1. Some argue that it is a heavenly scene, that John has this, has this opportunity to see what's happening in heaven. Others argue that it's an earthly scene, something that's happening on earth. And then others argue that it is a prophetic scene pointing to that day when, when Christ returns and begins to usher in his kingdom. I would argue the preferable view is that this is a prophetic vision, and here's why. Why is it not a heavenly vision? Why, why is this not something happening in heaven as John sees it? Well, chapter 7 of Revelation tells us that these 144,000 people are sealed by God. And they are protected from the devil's schemes and they also protected from God's judgment. And we understand from the language that these 144,000 never experience physical death. The idea being that they are ushered into the millennium immediately following the tribulation. And so if we argue this is a heavenly vision, then we've got to answer this question. How did they get to heaven? If they haven't died, how did they get there? Now, possibly they could be taken to heaven in a miraculous fashion like Enoch and Elijah. They could be raptured to heaven. But we don't see any language that, that would lead us to that conclusion in Scripture. 
So maybe it's an earthly vision. Maybe John sees this vision of Christ literally standing in the, in the, in the city of God here on earth. But if we argue for that view, then we have to also answer this question. Well, when did Jesus return? Because again, there's no language in Scripture that he's already returned at this point. And so, the preferable view is that this is a prophetic scene that John sees that day when Christ returns and ushers in his millennial kingdom. And we'll see more of that here as we get into chapters 19, 20, and 21. Now look with me at verse 3. John says, They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so they are seen singing with Christ, singing the song of the redeemed. Now, something very interesting that we just read here. No one can learn this song except these 144,000. Now, I don't know why God wouldn't allow anybody else to learn this song, and, and Scripture doesn't give us any, any, any reason to understand that, and so we don't even need to speculate. But for some reason, this is a special song that only these 144,000 can learn. But here's the principle we need to be reminded of. Listen carefully to me this morning. The redeemed of the Lord sing His praises. That's what we've seen throughout Revelation so far. We, sing the rede- we see the redeemed of the Lord singing His praises. And church, I just want to encourage you in that. Even in this life, one of the great privileges we have as followers of Christ is that you and I get to sing regardless of what it sounds like. Okay, We get to sing the praises of our Lord. And we need to be a part of that in this life so that we're not surprised and caught off guard in the next life. Okay, The redeemed of the Lord sing His praises. So be reminded of that. Then in verses 4 and 5, we see this. We see the 144,000 separated unto Christ. Look what we read here. Beginning in verse 4. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. This is one of the most difficult verses in all of Revelation, in all of Scripture to really understand what is happening here. What is John implying here? What is he trying to say to us? Some argue that it is implying that that these 144,000 abstained from marriage and then further abstained from any physical intimacy in marriage during the tribulation. Others argue that it's, that it's just figurative language, symbolic language, uh, pointing to spiritual purity. I would argue for the latter, and here's why. Throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis and throughout all of God's Word, we we read and understand that marriage is sacred, that marriage is honorable, that marriage is good and healthy, and that physical intimacy within the context of a marriage relationship is God-given, God-designed, and and God-blessed. And so there's no reason for us to think um, that, 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 that this is some kind of language pointing to 144,000 who abstain from marriage and then further abstain from physical intimacy that, that just doesn't agree with the rest of Scripture. 
So that's why I would argue that this is language pointing to spiritual purity. Let me, let me remind you of something. Particularly in the Old Testament, unfaithfulness to the Lord is often referred to as adultery in the Old Testament. Specifically, you can look at the book of Hosea, okay? And chapters 1, 2, and 3, even more specifically in that text. Okay, it's, it's a picture of Hosea marrying an unfaithful woman by the name of Gomer. Moms and dads, let me just tell you, don't name your child Gomer. Okay, that would be awkward. But anyway, if your name's Gomer, I apologize. Um, but don't do that. Anyway, but we see this picture of Hosea and Gomer, and we see just this, this readily blatant unfaithfulness, and God uses it as an illustration of our unfaithfulness to him. And so that's why I would argue that this is referring to spiritual purity. And the next verse, the next statement in that verse kind of supports this, because look what we read here. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They, they were faithful followers to Christ. They were faithful to the one true God in his Son, Jesus Christ. And even further, look at what verse 5 says. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. That is a word that does not refer to perfection, but instead it tells us they were above reproach. These are individuals who were separated unto Christ. They were set apart for the glory and the honor of Christ. They were distinctly different for the honor and the glory of Christ. Church, I just want to remind you of this. As Christians, God has called us to be distinctly different from the world. Our worldview ought to be different. Our motivations, our desires, our ambitions, our goals ought to be different. Our language ought to be different. Our attitude ought to be different. Our, our dress, our, I mean, everything about us ought to be different than the world. Not, not in a judging manner, but in a set-apart, in a sanctified manner, understanding that we live for the glory and the honor of Christ. And so that's verses 1 through 5. Let's jump down to verse 6 now. And here we see three angels preaching three different messages during the tribulation. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. 
So we see the first angel here preaching the eternal gospel. Look what we read here. Flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth. This first angel has a worldwide proclamation. It says to every nation, tribe, language, and people to preach the gospel. And he specifically is calling for, for the unredeemed of the world, the unregenerate of the world. Look what he says here. Fear God and give him glory. He's calling the nations and the villages and the peoples and the families of the world that don't know Christ as Savior to surrender in faith to him and, and fear God and give him glory with our lives. Don't you find it quite interesting that in the middle of the most challenging time in human history, when Satan's full wrath against humanity has been bearing down, and God's judgment is real and evident, even in that context, God is still giving men and women the opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ. Why? Because God wants to see people saved and redeemed. Listen carefully to me this morning. If you're here today and you have never said yes to Jesus Christ, you've never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ, maybe you're thinking about it, maybe you've got questions about it, maybe you're wanting to understand this more fully and completely, hear me, hear me this morning. Jesus Christ died to save and redeem you. And God wants you to say yes. God wants you to be saved and redeemed. No more, nowhere is this more evident than in verses 6 and 7. Look, let me remind you of what we read over here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. L listen to Paul's instructions to Timothy. Timothy was his uh, protege in the faith. He was pastoring uh, what we believe to be the church at Ephesus at this time. He says this, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so God says that you and I as Christians ought to be praying for those in authority over us. We ought to be asking God to move and work in their life. Now notice what he says next. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we read this. Referring to the second coming of Christ, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He wants you to come to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. He wants your husbands and your wives and your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and your nephews and your aunts and your uncles and your classmates and your teammates and your neighbors and your co-workers. He wants to see them saved and redeemed. And verses 6 and 7 remind us of that desire of the Lord. Look with me now at verse 8. 
The second angel pronounces the bad news of God's judgment. John says, and another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Babylon the great is a reference to this, this world system that we live in, a world system who, whose views and ideology and philosophies are contrary to God and the things of God. The, the entirety of this system, which is opposed to God in every way conceivable, we're told here, comes to judgment, that it'll ultimately fall at the hand of God. Now, chapter 18, which we're going to get to in just a couple few weeks, will give us more details of this judgment, of this, of this world system, this world environment that we live in. Now, look at verse 9. We see a third angel. This third angel uh, promises damnation to all those who worship the beast and his image. And, and pay close attention to the language. He says, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. If anyone chooses to follow after the Antichrist, if anyone chooses to worship the adversary, God promises that the full, his full wrath will be poured out on them. And notice what he goes on to say, that they will be tormented forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. There are some who argue that hell is a place of annihilation, that hell is a place of termination. It is not. It is a place of eternal torment. And for all those who choose to reject Christ and God's offer of salvation, they will reap eternal torment in the eternal lake of fire. It will never, ever end. Now look with me at verses 12 and 13. For we see the assurance of salvation for the follower of Christ. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. So they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. In the exact opposite fashion of those who follow Satan and Antichrist, where, where there will be no rest for them day or night forever and ever, God's Word promises that those who know Christ, who die in the Lord, will have eternal rest, eternal rest in His presence. How good is that? The chaos and the confusion and the frantic pace of life we live in will come to an end and you and I rest in the presence of the Lord. And even further, notice what he goes on to say, their works will follow them. Again, we've, we've looked at this previously uh, earlier, but a reminder that the Lord rewards faithfully follow him in this life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Hebrew cha Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, 
And even here in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, look what Jesus says to us. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. And so you and I should find motivation and encouragement in that as we faithfully follow Christ in this life, that there are eternal reward and consequences in the next. Now, let's look at verse 14. In verses 14 through 20, we see the great harvest day of God. Look what we read here. Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth. Because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth. And he threw them in the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Now here's what John sees, first of all, in verse 14. He sees a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head. That white cloud is a reference to the glory and the majesty of Christ. And here's something very interesting. This is why the particular language of Scripture is important. It says he was wearing a golden crown on his head. The Greek word there for crown, there's two Greek words for crown. One is Stephanos and the other is diadem. But they refer to two different things. Stephanos refers to a victor's crown. The crown they would place on, on the winner of an athletic competition in the ancient uh, precursor to the Olympic Games. A diadem is the crown that royalty wears, the crown of a king or a queen. But here's what's so fascinating about this language. This is the Stephanos, the crown of victory, reminding us, listen carefully, reminding us that Christ is victorious. (laughs) And we're going to see the details of that victory when we get in chapters 19 and 20. Christ is victorious. But here we see this, this, this harvest day of God. A harvest that we've read about all throughout Scripture. Let me just read to you from Isaiah chapter 63. And, and listen if you hear any similar language. In Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. Who is this coming from Edom in crimson stained garments from Basra? The one who is splendid in his apparel, striding in his formidable might. It is I, proclaiming vindication, powerful to save. Why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? I trampled the winepress alone and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. 
Their blood spattered my garments, and all my clothes were stained. For I planned the day of vengeance, and the year of my redemption came. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I was amazed that no one assisted. So my arm accomplished victory for me, and my wrath assisted me. I crushed nations in my anger. I made them drink with my wrath and poured out their blood on the ground. And so 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, through the prophet Isaiah, God tells us of this coming day of judgment. The prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2, in beginning in verse 12, listen to what he writes. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle, because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes, because the winepress is full. The wine vats overflow, because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. And then a little closer to home. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us the parable of the, of the, wheats, of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. And then his disciples ask him to explain it. And here's what he says to us in Matthew 13. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all who call sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun, listen to this, in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So all throughout Scripture, we are reminded of this harvest day of God's judgment. And then we see here in these verses, particularly, two types of harvest. We, we see in verses 14 through 16 the, the grain harvest. We see Jesus coming to establish His kingdom. And they gather the wheat of the world. Daniel alluded to this great day when the Lord would come and establish his kingdom. Listen to what he says in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12 or verse 13. He says this I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and was escorted before Him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Remember, I've mentioned this several times, that the hope of Israel was the establishment of the Messianic kingdom, an age of peace and prosperity where where, where Israel would be set free from the bondage and the tyranny of the nations that had long ruled and governed them. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel even gets more specific when he announces to Mary this wonderful birth and child that she is going to deliver. Listen to what he says to her. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so we see these prophetic announcements of this kingdom that the Messiah will establish. And we're going to see that in more detail in just a few weeks. Then we get to verse 17 and we see this grape harvest where he takes this sickle and he gathers the clusters of grapes and he takes them into his wine press. And verse 20 says, Then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. This is an allusion to the battle of Armageddon, the details that we'll see in Revelation chapter 19. And, and here's what's so interesting about the battle of Armageddon. It, it's really not a battle. It, it's more of a slaughter. From when Jesus Christ returns, the armies of the world that, are, that have assembled and wage war against him will be annihilated. So much so, look at the amount of blood that will flow. Up as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles or or 1,600 stadia. The judgment of God at Armageddon will be enormous and the consequences will be immense. And we'll see the details again in just a few chapters over. So, look with me in your notes. I've kind of given you a a summarization, if you will. What what, what do we take away from chapter 14? Here's what I'd like you to take away. Chapter 14 reminds us, first, that God is a God of love. Now, what do I mean by that? Go back to the first angel. Even in the midst of of the most incredible judgment of God in the history of, of, of creation and of humanity, what is God doing through this first angel's preaching? He is giving the unregenerate of the world, the unbelieving of the world, the opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ. He's revealing His love and His grace and His mercy even in these final moments of human history. But chapter 14 is not only a reminder that God is a God of love, it is also a reminder that He is a God of justice. We live in a day and an age where folks want to focus on the God of love, the God of love, the God of love. And we want to ignore that He's a God of justice. He is equally a God of love and He's equally a God of justice. We we can't separate the two from His nature, from His attributes. He is both. And we see that in chapter 14. Now, go, look with me further here. Nowhere is this more evident that he is a God of love and he is a God of justice than, on the, than the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me. In love, he gave up his life in our place as our substitute, paying the penalty of our sin. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners... Not when we got our life in order, not when we got our ducks in a row, not when we quit doing all the things we shouldn't be doing. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
The cross is the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever known. But it is also the greatest demonstration of God's justice. For injustice, he satisfied the Father's required payment of sin, death. What did God say to us in Genesis chapter 3? For when you eat of this fruit, you will certainly die. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In justice, he satisfied the Father's required payment of sin, death, so that all who repent of their sin and place their faith in him will find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And that truth is for me, and that truth is for you, and for anyone listening online, and for every other individual throughout all of creation. So here's my question to you. Have you embraced the love of God and said yes to Jesus Christ.